Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, March the 30th, 2017, and this is episode 1973 of the Survival Podcast. And it is a listener call show. This is where you pick your phone up and you dial some numbers. Those numbers are 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK, or you can go to the survivalpodcast.com. Look for the speak pipe in the center column. Click the speak pipe button. Use your microphone or your mobile device and send me a message via the power of the Internet. To be on a show like this, follow the example you will hear from these callers. Be in a quiet place. Speak loud and clearly so I can understand you. Uh, when you do that, make sure you don't have a lot of background noise or something like that going on. If some guy's running a weed eater, tell him to shut it off until you get done with your call or find another place. Don't call with the windows down, doing 80 miles an hour with 220, 280 air conditioning, right? And when you call, say, Jack, my question is, or my comment is, and get it out in one sentence. Then give me details. It'll go better. You'll be more likely to get on the air. By the way, great time for you guys to make calls. On recent calls, I'm cleaned out. I've got stuff in the archives to go back into. But I, if you call this week, you will be on next week's show. That's like a 90% chance of that. So if you've been wanting to get something answered and it hasn't been done so, call or speak, pipe it in, and we will get to you. What are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about using creek water for bathing and washing food and things like that. We're going to talk about using plants that are called invasive species. And, and should we be doing that? And if so, what do we need to consider before we do? Uh, talk about how to bury a gun. And I'm going to say, should you even do that? You'll understand the context when you hear the question. Um, how about dealing with wind killing your garden? A lot of you people are like, what? Uh, <clears throat> down here in the south, this guy's from Austin, uh, our springs are incredibly windy. And I don't just mean the storms. I mean, you outside, it's just like, <laughs> like Chicago is not the windy city like Dallas is. Uh, so I have a question on that. Uh, gardening in the desert. Uh, I have a, a, a view on how one might do that. Installing swales and time budgeting when you're doing that and, and, and using the right equipment and appropriate technology. Make sure we're doing the install right. All kinds of stuff on that one. And will government push self-driving cars and use terrorism as an excuse because we have people drive over people? I don't know, but it's an interesting thing to examine. Uh, maybe we'll examine it more from the idea of will government push self-driving cars at all? Is it in their best interest to have self-driving cars? Or is it in their best interest that they not? Or is it in their best interest that they have both? We'll, uh, we'll look at it that way because government tends to do what's in government's self-interest. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at Directive21.com. Again, Directive, and then the number is 21.com. Hey folks, when I started TSP over eight years ago now, the first company to ever offer to sponsor the show was SafeCastle. And they've remained a loyal sponsor ever since February of 2009. And did you know they give away a lifetime discount membership to all MSB members? They do. And that can save you big money on everything you can imagine for your prepping needs. And with SafeCastle, I do mean everything. Check out SafeCastle.com today to learn more. 
And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Schaefer Select Coins. They provide rare numismatic coins and currency. They are located in Central PA, or you can visit their online store through their link in the TSP Business Directory. And, of course, I'll have a link to their uh, their listing in today's show notes as well. Next up, let us take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1973, because the episode is 1973. Two from Alex Shrugged and one from Southpaw Ben, as it's becoming the tradition here. We have the first OPEC oil crisis from Alex Shrugged. We have tax evasion costs Agnew the presidency, presidency from Southpaw Ben. And we have the sexual suicide of America contributed by Alex Shrugged. These are all good. All good. I'm, I don't know which one I'm going to do yet. I'm going to read the bullet points and think about it. Notable births. Monica Lewinsky, White House intern and love interest of Bill Clinton. Note Alex Shrugged has a tenuous connection with the Lewinsky family. We're going to have to know more about that. Supermodels Tyra Banks and Heidi Klum are born this year. In comedy, Dave Chappelle, Seth MacFarlane, a family guy, Seth Myers, SNL, and Kristen Wiig of SNL. In TV, Tori Spelling. In sports, Terrell Owens, born in 1973. This year in film, The Sting, con man seek revenge for the murder of their old friend, and ragtime music becomes popular again. The Exorcist, Linda Blair plays a girl possessed by the devil. The music, Tubular Bells, becomes popular. American Graffiti, young people coming of age. These young actors are future big names. Harrison Ford, Richard Dreyfus, Ron Howard, and more. And the controversials, Jesus Christ Superstar, Solient Green, and Westworld. This year in TV, debuting The Six Million Dollar Man. I grew up watching that. Kojak, right? Terry Savalas, and Schoolhouse Rock. If you're a 70s and 80s kid, you remember Schoolhouse Rock. Uh, this year in music, Angie from the Rolling Stones, Tie a Yellow Ribbon Round an Old Oak Tree by Tony Orlando and Dawn, Crocodile Rock from Elton John, and the OPEC oil crisis is depressing record sales because oil products are used to make plastic records. This year in video games, Pong clones dominate. Jukebox and arcade game companies scramble to take advantage of the video game craze. Instead of innovating and making new stuff, everybody keeps making the same stupid game that a few years nobody will really play anymore. That's my opinion on that one, by the way. In other news, Federal Express delivers. Fred Smith's professor gave him a C on his college paper proposing an overnight delivery service by air. This is why you don't allow professors to run businesses. Alex Strug says that. I agree, yeah. All right. The first cell phone is made. Molarola's Martin Cooper calls his competitor, Joe Engel, at Bell Labs and says, Joel, I'm calling you from a cell phone. A real cell phone. It weighs 2.5 pounds and the battery lasts 20 minutes. It's a start. Roe versus Wade makes abortion legal. Actually, it was already legal. The ruling forces all states to allow abortion on demand. Years of fighting begin. All right, so I've made up my mind. I'm going to read tax evasion costs Agnew the presidency because it's a, it's a true um, t temporal shift. I mean, you could go back and, like, this could be like a Star Trek thing, like where, you know, there's an alternate universe um, if, if he hadn't done something stupid. So here it is. This is by Southpaw Ben. This year, Spiro Agnew, vice president of the United States, became the second vice president to resign from office. And it was the only, and was the only one to do so due to criminal charges. After being investigated by the United States attorney for the District of Maryland for a variety of charges, including extortion, tax evasion, and bribery, he was charged with accepting over 100,000 in bribes while a Baltimore County executive, the governor of Maryland, and the vice president. On the 10th of October, Agnew pled no contest to a single charge. 
$29,500 in unreported income in 1967 on the condition that he would resign from his post of Vice President of the United States. After various later civil lawsuits, he paid the state of Maryland almost $270,000 over the bribery charges. When one looks at the fallout later this year from Watergate, we will see Agnew's poor decisions cost him the presidency. As with Watergate, it's, and this is from South Bend, as with Watergate itself, we saw a small decision, or in this case, a series of decisions, can alter a path of world history. Had Agnew paid his taxes and taken his bribes in legal fashion, we would have had President Agnew, 38th President of the United States. Instead, we wind up getting House Minority Leader Gerald Ford in this role. I'm going to take it another step forward. Country was very dissatisfied coming up in, 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 in 1975, 1976, and we got the peanut farmer Jimmy Carter as President of the United States. It's not likely, but it is possible that had Agnew, a sitting vice president, assumed the presidency, that he would have been able to defeat Carter, unlike Ford. Had Agnew defeated Carter, I'm not saying it would have happened, but it could have. He was more likely to have defeated Carter than Ford would have been. Um, then it, there would have been no Jimmy Carter. If there had been no Jimmy Carter, it's likely that by 1980, with everything still being in a shit can, and it would have been, Agnew would have lost to the Democratic Party, somebody. Would it would have been, who would it have been? We, we really don't know. Would Carter have come back around and taken another swing at it? That happens a lot in American politics. person runs for president. They don't make it, but they come back. They end up you know, winning a nomination again. Would Carter have even won the nomination if Agnew had been the thing? But here's the thing. What happens to Ronald Reagan? What happens to the Reagan years if Agnew had stayed in office? They may have never happened. So even if you don't think like what would have been done in those couple of years with Ford would have made a huge difference... If the election changed, how would our lives be different today? It's interesting to think about, given that we were still in the middle of the Cold War. I personally think it wouldn't have actually changed much. But I could be wrong, and one does not fiddle with the threads of time as we've learned from science fiction. So we can go think about this, and you know, quantum physics tells us that all that did happen, and every other possibility did as well, and it's going on somewhere in the multiverse right now. Not really history, but just fun to think about. Sometimes we need stuff that's fun to think about. My take by Jack Spierko. With that, let's go ahead and take uh, our first question of the day. This one is on using creek water for things like bathing, cleaning produce, and, and other things. Hey, Jack. This is Rand in Chicago. I have a question about disinfecting creek water to use for bathing, cleaning dishes, and washing produce. Details. We are currently moving to a remote location in North Carolina and will be using a creek on the property as our primary water source. My plan is to get a couple 275-gallon IBC totes and fill them with water pumped from the creek. I will use a pantyhoe strainer and a strainer on the pump end to filter out any large debris. However, I was wondering what would be best for disinfecting any residual bacteria and viruses once the water is in the tote. Again, this water is only for bathing, cleaning dishes, and washing produce. Thanks for all you do, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Okay, I'm going to start out with the generic, quick, short answer. And then I'm going to give you the more thoughtful, a little bit longer answers. So I would say if this creek is something that you would swim in, and it's relatively clean water, uh, then you don't even need to worry about when you're using it for doing dishes or bathing. Unless you have children that maybe don't understand, don't drink the water, don't rub it in your eyes, things like that. 
um, it should be fine. If we are if we're doing dishes with it, you, we're using a detergent. And if we're using some sort of an antibacterial detergent, we're pretty good. And once we clean dishes and they dry off, et cetera, they're then going to, you know, be there open and dry. And, and any remaining problems would just be completely minimized to almost nothing. And then when we're taking a, a bath, we're doing, you know, we're using soap, we're using shampoo. And so, again, I'm, I'm reiterating, if this is water you would happily swim in, then... You know, you should be fine. You should be completely, totally fine with those two uses. Um, now, when it comes to washing produce, now we got to start thinking because if there's some nasty, wasty thing in that water, uh, it could hang on as a water droplet. We get a little bit into us, and it, it could be a problem. It's probably minimal risk, but it's not worth taking when the solution is so simple. What I would advise you there, this is if you couldn't do what I'm going to say next would be to um, water that you're going to use for washing any food items to take that water from your big tanks into some sort of smaller basin and add between 6 to 12 drops of chlorine bleach per gallon uh, to that water. Give it a good stir before you use it. It's not enough bleach that it's going to matter at all. It's not going to hurt you, especially as residual on your stuff. It's cheap, it's effective, and it works. Just make sure you're using a pure chlorine bleach not lemon-scented or something like that. And if you right there, you should just be good. Here's what I'm going to say, though. It's 2017, and water testing's cheap. I would say it would be a great idea to get a baseline of what you're dealing with, what's in there in the first place. And since water testing's cheap, you might want to do this a couple times throughout the year because spring, summer, fall will have different possibilities of things like Girardi and, uh, and, and other things being in the water that may or may not be of real concern, depending on what you're doing with the water. So that's what I would do, is get the water tested first. And I would go ahead and start using it, you know, the way I said, and, but I would get it tested. The spring's a great time. Midsummer, when it's really hot, fall, when the whole summer's been, see if there's any big variations in any kind of dangerous contaminants in the water. Because you may find that this water in this creek, depending on where it is and where it comes from, is in general, still don't drink it without some sort of additional step, but in general is safer than water that comes out of city taps. If this is a fast-moving mountain stream, right, it's primarily based in rock and there's not mining around. Because I, I know creeks that where I grew up that, like, you would you would just wouldn't drink out of them. You, you'd gag and die, you know, just from a stink, from sulfur. And other creeks that, like, you know don't drink out of there, even though the water looks okay. And there's other creeks where I grew up you we drank out of all the time when we were hunting and fishing. Reach down in your hand and just drink the water. Nobody ever got sick because those were known, clean, pure sources of water that people would come and fill up jugs and take them home because the water was that good. So find out what you're dealing with. Because if what you're dealing with is considered potable water, then I would also say get a Berkey and run your drinking water through your Berkey, even though it's already considered safe. Because you don't know when something will contaminate water that's generally considered safe. Because remember what I just said when we drank out of these streams. We didn't generally do that in summer. Because that was when there was the greatest risk with the higher temperatures of something being off. Um, and it's probably not the best practice anyway. All I can say is I grew up doing it. Everybody I knew did it. And I don't remember anybody ever getting sick. Today I would take that extra step because it only takes once. It only takes once that some rotten carcass is laying in the creek upstream 
and uh, is some kind of contaminant that's been built up and it's oozing out of it. You don't, I mean, you never know, right? But I would get that baseline. I would not over, I mean, if you're, the plan, the reason you're, to me, the fact that you're thinking about doing this anyway means it's probably a pretty nice look at body of water. You wouldn't be looking at doing this in the first place. Get it tested, find out. The other thing is your IBCs. Make damn sure they're completely covered, and it probably wouldn't hurt to treat them with chlorine bleach as well. And do the math and figure out for how many gallons, you know, what have you. And then kind of have a cheat sheet or something. So, like, what you'll probably be doing is you won't let the IBC go all the way empty. So if you're going to fill it up, if there's, if it's, I remember what you said. Now, let's say there are 330-gallon IBC. You're going to fill it up at 200-gallon mark, then you're adding 130 gallons. So add an appropriate amount of bleach. Because if there's any kind of um, any kind of bacteria or algae or anything like that in there, now it has a nice stationary place to multiply itself. We keep the light out and give it a little bit of a, a, a chlorination. Then we don't even have to really worry about it when we use it for washing produce and things like that. I still would. I still would because over time that bleach is going to off-gas. And, uh, you know, depending on what your rate of use is, You know what? An eyedropper with a little, like a little two or four ounce bottle, clearly marked bleach that you keep right wherever you wash your food. That you have, you know, I would do something like this. I would get like a five gallon bucket, and I would plumb a spigot into it so you can set it up above whatever you're using as a sink basin, and then you can turn it on and use it just like a sink. And uh, I think you might have an all-around solution then. You won't have to, like, truck in drinking water if, if you take the step of testing it first, forming a baseline. And then, of course, if there's anything in it, they're going to say, well, maybe this is edgy or whatever. You run through your Berkey. Have it tested after it comes out of your Berkey as well so you know what you're dealing with there. Because I have a friend that, that basically turned his backyard swimming pool into a pond, and he took his pond water, ran it through his Berkey, and then sent it off to be tested, and it tested better than Fort Worth City water. Just saying Uh, but always be careful when anything involves your health. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Jesse out of Iowa. I had a question for you about your opinion on uh, invasive species. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to get more into permaculture and do food forces, but some of the plants I really want to utilize are considered invasive species like bamboo, Siberian pea trees, and uh, uh, even shucks, I forget the name, uh, I heard another plant name. Anyway, I know there's alter there's alternative plants I could use, so I don't have to use those. But I'm torn. You know, first of all, it's my property. I should be able to plant what I want to plant. But at the same time, if like say I got stuff here in peach trees and you know deer are munching on the pods and the pods are distributed in my other neighbor's property and those plants take off going crazy, well, I won't be held responsible, and that they may not want the plants there. And uh, And I understand about plants have certain roles in the soil, like ragweed pulls up phosphorus potassium, foxtails indicator of compact soils. And I'm sure certain like olive olives, um, or Russian olive olives are extremely invasive bush here, but you know, they, to me, I guess I want your opinion on too, if they have a certain purpose, like filling a gap in the soil, whatever amendment it's losing or it's trying to free up the soil, whatever, one would think that tree or bush or plant would eventually serve its purpose and die if another takes its place. Real quick, you can see vast differences in what kind of weeds are in fields. Like you might see a field full of foxtail. The next field over is full of Canadian thistle, and they're not maybe one of those two species in the other field. It's just trying to fix a problem. 
And I'm wondering with invasive species, that's the exact same thing, if it's just a scam. Um, I don't know. And I'm kind of torn because I'm in the habitat business, and I don't want to be public enemy number one, but at the same time, it'd be nice to utilize new new, you know, flora, you know, new uh, flora in our area. So let me know your thoughts, sir. I really appreciate it and keep up the great work. Thank you. And I'm going to pull out the old Swiss Army knife of the permaculture consultant and answer with it depends. And uh, but don't worry, I won't leave you hanging there. Let's talk about what it depends on. So, for instance, I'll speak to Autumn Olive here, but I won't speak to Siberian Pishra because I've heard about it. I know what it is. I don't think it'll grow well here. So I've never made any effort to really learn more about it. Um, so I don't have a lot of knowledge about that plant. I have a significant amount of knowledge about Autumn Olive. And what I would say is whenever you're, you're kicking around the idea of using any species that's considered invasive, You know, whether it's actually banned and you're going to take the risk or it's just, like, frowned upon. Like, in many places, Autumn Olive's not banned. It's just, like, we really don't want you to do this. I have it all over my property. Here's why. That ship has left the harbor, right? It, 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 it's gone. That, that plane has flown. There, there, there's no uncapping it. And, and Autumn Olive exists in my area already anyway. If there... If, so... The fact that I'm growing it is not going to actually make anything any worse because it's already here. It's already done. And it got here because people from the government planted it massively along highways all across America. So it's invaded what it's capable of invading. I also know more about Autumn Olive than just that. I know that it is an edge species. It doesn't take over fields. And it doesn't take over forests. It takes over edges. And it, in that capacity, it improves soil fertility. It extends the edges of forests. It's a perfectly, and it produces something edible, and it's useful. Okay, so it, it is not really a harmful plant. There's just a lot of people that are like ecologists with their, their, their panties in a wad that think everything's invasive. These are the same people that have called juniper invasive in the sagebrush steppe. When juniper is native to the sagebrush steppe, it's just one of the few plants that's able to survive with the damage we've done to that ecosystem. So how the hell can a plant be an invasive species in its own native habitat? It's becoming a dominant species because we've screwed up the balance, right? So I, I am a person that, that really follows the, the credo of Bill Mollison. I use 100% native species in my designs. They're all native to planet Earth, Okay. However, there are some invasives that really can do a lot of damage. The, the chief one among them that I would look at would be kudzu. Kudzu is a disaster for the South. It really is. It will, it will eat forest. It will grow across open fields. And it will leave desert in its wake. It is that bad. And people will point out, well, in its native you know, area, it's considered an asset, and they graze goats on it. We don't do that here, right? And we're not going to do that here. And if you're propagating kudzu in a place where it already hasn't got to, you're doing something bad. I mean, you really are. It, 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 it's, it, it, is, it is dangerous to our ecosystem. So I think as a designer and as a, as a person managing your own homestead, we shouldn't go out and grab something just because it sounds neat. We should fully understand the impact that it will make on our environment. However, if someone was in Atlanta and they found a use for kudzu 
and they were growing kudzu in their backyard. I'm sure the whole world would blame them for all of Atlanta's you know, problems, but they're really not hurting anything because Atlanta's been trying to get rid of kudzu for 35 or 40 years. So if it's already there, I think it's way less of an issue. So my question to you would be, is there Siberian pea shrub already in your area? You know, as far as your neighbor's property, it depends. If he's maintaining it by keeping it cleared, it's not going to be a problem. If he's not maintaining it by keeping it cleared, something's going to fill the gap. And it'll probably be, it'll probably be stuff that's just as annoying and less useful, but I'm not sure because I am far away from an expert about Siberian pea shrub. I know that it's a nitrogen fixer. I know that it grows a hard pea-like grain that people say chickens eat. And plenty of people who have grown it told me their chickens won't touch it. That, that's about the total knowledge I have of Siberian pea shrub. I also know that it is all over um, Montana. All over Montana. And uh, that when we did the, uh, the, the food forest design in, uh, in uh, Helena that when we drove around the surrounding neighborhoods looking for useful plants, that it was all over the place. So whether it's invasive or not, would I not plant it in Helena? Hell no. If I had a use for it, I'd plant it because it's already there. That's, that's a lot different from, let's say, going someplace where it's never existed and planting a large amount of it. Um, because now you're going to give it a beachhead and it's going to become a problem. I, I predict that people will be throwing their, their shit in the air about... Uh, uh, Seabury sometime in the future in the Northeast from all the people who are planting it up there because it's going to self-propagate at some point. But it's a useful plant. Um, I can't get it to live here. If I get it to live here, it's not going to be an invasive species here. It can't be. It could barely live here. right? So I, I think, again, that this is something we have to just take a little bit of conscious thought when we're making these decisions to use certain plants. I know that there are certain plants here that are considered invasive. And they're illegal in Texas. Um, but they can only be grown as annuals where I live. Because they can't survive the winter where I live. They can in South Texas. So instead of the state of Texas using, you know, what limited brain faculty the state has and saying, you know, this is banned, you know, south of Austin or something like that, a little bit of a safety neutral buffer zone, they just banned it statewide. Right? Like it's going to go invasive in the desert out by El Paso. Like, so, so somebody's out in the middle of El Paso with a water garden with this thing, it poses a threat? you got to be shitting me. So governments are not rational in this world. But we as designers need to be rational, logical, and responsible with our decisions. So make fully informed decisions when we use species that could be considered invasive. And I'll point out finally, one of the most invasive species that's actually causing problems throughout the south and southeast and all the way up into like the mid-Atlantic is privet. Privet gets into the ecosystems. It goes wild. It, it displaces Japan holly, which is a native plant and a quite useful one at that, where privet is pretty much useless. Okay? Privet is sold by every big box store. It's like box bushes, right? When you go look and people have like the little, you know, hedge trimmered hedges, a lot of that is privet and different varieties of privet. So that's being sold every day. And it actually is a problem and it's useless. But it's pretty so the government doesn't care. It's used for landscape so the government doesn't care. So, again, they're idiots, but we still need to be responsible because sometimes even idiots are right. All right, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Hey, I have a question. 
So on a previous podcast, a guy talked about keeping storing his uh, uh, his gun at his cabin. Uh, I too have a cabin up north, up uh, northern Michigan. I don't want to keep it in my um, cabin. I've actually entertained the idea of maybe I need to bury it. Uh, I've got a couple extra guns that I thought, you know, what, I should keep them up there just just in case. So my question would be. If I was going to bury it, how would I prepare it? Uh, what kind of oil should I um, lubricate it with? Uh, what are my options? What do you think? Um, when, I'm t- when I say bury it, I mean long term. I've got extra guns. I don't need it. It would be just nice to have it there. I'm a little concerned of theft and or fire at where it sits because there's virtually nobody around. And I know my neighbors have been broke into thought about hiding it in the up in the attic but then i still concerned that you know what happens if someone you know looks around i'm not there i only go there probably two months out of the year thank you for uh all you do appreciate it have a good day bye i'm going to start out with i wouldn't do this at least the way that you sound like you want to do this um, if I were going to do it, I would give it a very thick coat of, of good quality gun oil. I would put it in something called a gun sock. I would definitely give it a good coating inside and out. Um, and I would put it in some sort of a tube that is definitely watertight. I would get a fairly large uh, cloth bag. I would fill it with about a pound of rice. I would tie it off and use that as a, a desiccant. I would put that in there with it. I would seal it up, and I would I would I would bury it somewhere, probably using something like post hole diggers and uh, some sort of a mark that I could find it. Uh, I would probably uh, uh, maybe drive a stake in the ground so I could go find it with a metal detector because you may not be able to detect it with a metal detector in the tube. I've never tried, and uh, make sure that not only did I know where it was, I had like a backup to be able to find it, and, and that's what I would do if I was he- you know headset on doing this. Um, to me, a gun is an asset. Even if it's not a gun that you use all the time, it can be traded, it can be bartered, it can be sold. And if I had guns that were so useless to me that I was willing to throw them in a hole in the ground for 20 years, um, I would go sell them and I would take the money and do something with it. Now, I am all about having firearms available at a remote location. So if you have to go there without firearms, you have firearms when you get there. Big thumbs up. So... If I'm going to bury this thing, I would look at it as there a place in the floor where I can create a trap door, where I can do all the things I just said, but maybe it's not buried so deep in the ground. Maybe it's just, you know, it looks like a piece of plumbing under the ground. And uh, I can reach down and unscrew it and pull it right out with a rope. And uh, if I was doing that, every time I went to that location, well, depending on frequency, once or twice a year, I would pull that gun out, I would give it a good wiping down, a good function check, make sure nothing's wrong with it, and put it back where it was. That's how I would handle this. These people that have guns, like, oh, I know where three guns are buried out in the National Forest. No, you don't. I hope you don't ever need it, because you're never going to find it again. And, and, and here's the reality. It, it, I know this is your property, but if it's the kind of property that other people wander around on, unless it's clearly marked, and it seems like, you know, if it's near like a hunting area or somewhere, it seems like public... To the mind of the average person, if they find it, there's no harm in taking it. It's not stealing. Somebody left it there. Right? I mean, if you did it on public property, it would be, number one, illegal, and number two, the law would actually support the person that retrieved it. So 
I'm thinking more use the structure in some way to hide the weapon. And if I, if I was dead set on putting it in the ground, you've got to have a crawl space or something like that. And again, I'm thinking if you take something like, depending on the size of the weapon, a four to six inch pipe that's hard capped on the bottom with, with an end cap, PVC glued, and done down into the ground, even at an angle, so maybe it's a little bit easier, however you can do it. And at the top of it, you have a, a plug that you use a wrench to turn with a gasket. Anybody looking at it thinks it's like an old septic drain or something like that. You know? No one, in fact, you could even then sleeve it so it looks like it's connected up to the floor. That type of thinking makes more sense to me. A false wall makes more sense to me. Where anybody looking at it sees a wall, but there's a way for that wall to open. You know, an old bookcase that you have a false compartment in that even if somebody turns the bookcase over, the gun's inside the bookcase and there's a way to open it without tearing it apart. Things like that just make way more sense to me. What I'm saying is not only should it be hard for anybody to find or get, they don't know where it is, it should be easy and quick for you to get, and it should be so easy and quick for you to get that every time you're there or every other time you're there, you do get it out. You do kind of keep eyes on it. Because the way governments did this that worked was you coat the whole freaking gun in Cosmoline and wrap it in brown paper and keep it in a case. And that'll work. And it makes your gun yucky and nasty. And it really ain't good for things like synthetic stocks or nicely finished sporting rifles and things like that. It really only works for old school mill serp rifles. Those are my thoughts. I'm going to go ahead and take another one now. This one here is going to be on dealing with wind with your gardening. Hey, Jack. Austin Dean Leo here from Texas with a question on gardening. I have moved into a new residence. Uh, the residence I am in is in a neighborhood. Uh, however, we have massive wind exposure. Uh, I'm having problems with wind from all directions, southern exposure and northern exposure of wind. My backyard faces the south uh, with full sun. Obviously, the front faces, you know, the north. My question is on dealing with the wind exposure. Um, we have crosswinds. We have a lot, of, a lot of wind going on from southern wind and northern wind here in central Texas. And I'm noticing that it's damaging plants. How would you deal with this in a neighborhood and in a subdivision? Um, Any advice would be much appreciated. I'm trying to figure it out as we go. Uh, however, some expert experience would be great. Thank you. Thank you for everything you do, and continue doing good work. Um, again, for people that don't live where this is a problem, it may not even make sense how big of a problem it is. Having gardened in this, this environment for a long time, I can tell you it's a problem. And this time of year is where it's a big problem. You've got all your young seedlings in the ground, right? And then the wind comes through at like... 30 miles an hour sustained for like six hours in the middle of the day when it's, it's, it's spring, but yet it's 85 degrees out. Yeah. It just beats the sh Think of taking your, your, your beautiful little pepper plant you're about to plant and, and strapping it to the hood of your car and driving around for eight hours at 30 miles an hour, what it's going to look like at the end of that. So it, it does physical damage to young plants, especially. And it has a massive wicking effect of pulling away moisture. Where you water it and it's gone. And you water it and it's gone. It just can't keep. And, and, and mulch can help. But I've had berms here when I'm not even doing annuals. I'm doing perennials. And 
the wind gets so strong, it blows wo heavy wood mulch off the berm. Yeah. Because you get 50 mile an hour gusts with no storms. But they get that sustained between 15 and 30 mile an hour wind. It's just a bitch. So you say you're in the neighborhood. So what that tells me right away is you're kind of like, well, I can't plan a windbreak. Maybe you can't. Maybe you can. If you can find some sort of a shrub that's either ornamental or productive that you like, that you can plant in basically a square or make it like a shrub fence around your garden and prune it. I mean, you could even do this with the aforementioned privet uh, and prune it at about three feet high. Your garden's still going to get plenty of sun in the growing season because our sun gets very high here. So, And you want it really close. Like To be effective as a windbreak in these environments, something has to be like a couple feet away because the wind will come up over and set back down on you. So you could encircle your garden with, with a, a, a shrub hedge. From what I know of your situation, it's highly likely though that you're renting. If you've bought and you like the idea, you could go with that. What I did in Arlington, because I really didn't want one where my garden was. I just didn't think it would look right. And I, I knew we were going to sell the place, and I thought it might hamper my ability to sell. So what I did is I had the same problem as you, basically. Um, my, my garden got hit really heavy north and south winds and sometimes crosswinds, but it was north and south that killed it. So I got a couple pieces of cheap plywood, and I got some bracing. And from about the time I'd start putting my plants out, about early March, Through about mid-April to early May, I had these big, ugly pieces of plywood sitting out there that really cut down on the wind. And I did a heavy, heavy mulch. Because here's the good news. When the plants get bigger and the season gets later and the winds get lower, the problem goes away. So it's, it's, it's a early-year problem. It's an early-in-the-season problem that you're dealing with. So once you get through to about mid-May... Even though there's still quite a bit of wind around, as long as you've got a good mulch down, your plants are usually big enough that it kind of started to take care of itself. So those are your only two ways that I really know to solve this issue. You've got to put some sort of physical barrier up. And it can be temporary. And there's other, I mean, here's another way you could do it. What if you went to like Home Depot or Lowe's, made the investment, and bought some nice looking picket fence panels? And put a nice little picket fence around your, and you want Jack, the, Wind cuts right through those pickets. Well, sure it does. But we could then take some sort of like a an outdoor rated cloth uh, liner, like a, a shade cloth type of thing, go on the inside with a staple gun and staple that. And if it doesn't look really nice and you wanted to sell the house someday, we just pull the shade cloth off and leave your pretty little fence there. Paint it white, make it look like small town America, or use cedar and make it look rustic or whatever you want. Or we can put that little fence there. During the time of the year this is a problem, we can staple up our weed blocker. It's cheap. You know? We can tear it off as soon as we get past that part of the season. And it'll still let some air pass through, but it'll really stop that heavy pounding wind. And it'll also provide some protection from dogs or cats and things like that. So that would be another way you can do it. But without a physical barrier, it's tough. And then all you can do is hope your plants survive and kind of, kind of ride it out. You know, you can also do things like plant the, the most hardy things that are tall. Like if you're going to do corn and you're going to do a bed of corn, well, plant that on your south end, your, your north end to block your north wind. You don't want it on your south end because you'll really shade things out as that stuff gets up. But, e but even corn is not a big deal. I mean, I did it on the south end of my garden. Like, oh, my God. Yeah, well, pfft. 
by the time we got into summer, those plants were loving getting some shade during the day because that sun's directly overhead for, what, eight, nine hours a day. All right, so we've got to have some sort of physical barrier there. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. I want to get your thoughts on what consideration should be taken into account for desert living. Background. I just moved to a town in the Mojave Desert. It's considered Zone 9 High Desert, and my extent of my knowledge is that the sun seems to literally cook every plant I try to grow or take care of. A lot of plant care, gardening, and homesteading books seem to be written for a more eastern, moderate climate. What edible plants can handle this weather, or is trying to grow a garden just not feasible for this environment? I haven't seen any gardens in my area, and the few farms on the outskirts of town, I don't even know how to approach the farmers to ask the questions. I'm not even sure what to ask or if their knowledge fits what I need. Any advice would be appreciated. Thanks. Well, I do know some actual really great gardens take place out in deserts, um, and, and there's some reasons for that. One is because generally pests are less. The things that live on the things that grow in gardens don't do real well in the middle of Death Valley. Right, because it's not only you are there. So the problem is that they do show up, they zone in on you, but there's just not that many of them living out there to begin with. So that can be helpful. Um, zone nine that gives you some awesome perennials you can look into. You can create microclimates for, but that's not what you're asking about. So that's not what I'm going to go into. So gardening, um, there are techniques. I am I am not a desert expert. I live in what you would call a semi-desert environment that gets weather as cold as you know. Sometimes as cold as Zone 6 gets, uh, but it's rare. But then we also get heat that's, that's as hot as probably you know many desert climates. It's a weird thing. Um, but the desert is a whole new ball of wax, so to speak. One of the big techniques that is used in deserts is exactly the opposite of what's used in like the, the eastern climates, which is instead of building a raised bed, you actually build pit gardens. So you actually get your plants deeper into the ground. So you, you dig a pit out and then you only fill it maybe halfway back up with all your compost and that way any water ends up down in there and it shelters the wind like we were talking about with the last uh, caller but that technique doesn't work really well here it's too wet here during the spring to do that you end up building a pond um, so that would be one but I don't know a lot about that if I was forced to move to a desert climate and I, I was dead set on having an annual garden I would just say screw it I would go out and buy four by four post lumber and I would create a footprint of that garden and I would build basically a low pergola low enough that I can walk under it but not high enough to, to, to kind of undo the, what I had done and uh, I would put shade cloth on it and I would do all my garden beds under shade cloth and I would run 40 to 60 percent I'm not sure which you know I would check with local experts on that but it, it 40 to 50 at least shade cloth and I would bring the shade cloth down on the sides quite a bit so that as the sun hits on the side angles it's still providing quite a bit of shade um, and I would garden under that I would also look really hard at shade covered areas for your grow beds and go into aquaponics it's, those two solutions seem like they solve most of the problems that you would deal with and you might turn like a really harsh environment into a really great environment I know that when I go in my quail aviary and I have 60% shade cloth on it and uh, it's like 100 degrees in the summertime, you go in there, and it feels great. It feels great under that shade because it's a steady shade. And there's a difference between being shaded for 60% of the day and being shaded at 60% for the entire duration of the day. The pla you know, People say 60% is too much, and, and I'm experimenting. It might be too much, but it's good for the quail. 
And frankly, the cloth came before the decision to put grow beds in there. But the plants in there look happy as shit right now. Some of the little stuff like radishes and all seem to be getting a little leggy, but like the, 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 the tomatoes and the peppers and all, they look really, really happy under 60%. And we're not even through our summer yet. You know, and we're having a lot of overcast, cloudy days that are already, you know, equivalent to being 40, 50% shade all day long. When we get into our summers, I think it's going to be an incredible growing environment. So, you know, those are my thoughts on gardening in the desert. And, uh, you know, if they could do permaculture, food forests in the desert, one way or another, you can do a garden in the desert. But that, to me, would be the easy answer. I, this is a great opportunity, though. There's many members of this community that garden in the desert. So comments on today's show notes on this subject are, would be greatly welcome, I'm sure, by the caller, if you can do more than me. But I think if you get shade, irrigation, and good soil, you can grow almost anywhere. And it's easier to mitigate the issue of being too hot than it is to mitigate the issue of being too cold. It's a lot less energy intensive. You put 50, 60% shade up, and boom, you cut the ambient massively under that area. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Sean in Tennessee, and I'm wondering how many linear feet of swale could I expect a backhoe operator to be able to install on my property? The details are, after a couple years of evaluation, I'm ready for some initial earthworks to go in, and I've got enough budget for a couple of days' worth of work, but I have some specific things I want to get done, and I want to ensure that... I'm maximizing uh, the time that I have and the budget that I have, uh, so I want to prioritize the work, but I'm really not sure how much I could expect to get done. So if you've got any idea on uh, you know, a mid-sized backhoe, about two-foot-wide swale, and how many uh, linear feet per hour I could expect. I know at the beginning it's probably going to be slower, but over the course of a day or two, I'm um, just curious about your thoughts. Thanks for all you do. Okay, I'm going to start out with something. Uh, well, first I want to say for people that maybe are new to the show, haven't heard a lot on the permaculture stuff, what is a swale? A swale is a ditch on contour, meaning it's a dead-level ditch. Instead of a ditch that goes at a two- or three-degree pitch down and takes water away, you use a level, like an A-frame level or a laser level, and you find the contour line. Like when you look at a contour map, you're basically making that line. You're marking that out. We dig that, we put the dirt on the downhill side, so the downhill grade, and when it rains, that swale fills up. It doesn't hold water, though, long term. It holds water very short term, and the water infiltrates back into the land. It weeps up into the, the, the downhill berm, and it helps with irrigation. It helps with a lot of other things that are too complicated to go. But if you, um, if you type uh, Jeff Lawton Swales, G-E-O-F-F, -F, Jeff Lawton Swales into YouTube, you'll find all kinds of videos about him teaching about He's probably the master of it. And there's a permaculture series of videos that are free that I did on YouTube that I'll link to in the show notes today that gets into a lot of things about swales. But just a baseline there, a swale's a level ditch. Okay, now next thing. He said something at the end. I'm like, whoa, hold on. He said a two-foot-wide swale. I, I don't know why you're building a two-foot-wide swale. And if you're using a backhoe to do it, I really don't understand. I really don't understand. Uh, maybe you meant a two-foot-wide bucket on the backhoe. I'm going to run them with that assumption. But if you want a two-foot-wide swale, that's something you install with, like, uh, a, a shovel uh, and a hoe and a rake. Or you get a rototiller 
and because there's like a garden swale then, and you run your rototiller on your swale line, and we've done this, it works, and then you just like use a rake or a hoe, and you just pull the loose dirt out, and you like flatten it out and shape your burn. And that's fine if you want little footpath swales and stuff like that. Great to do. I'm going to assume you've got a two-foot bucket. So here's my next thing. Don't use a backhoe. Don't use a backhoe. Please, oh, loving God, don't use a backhoe. The only way I see it makes sense to use a backhoe to cut swales in is if you have a free backhoe and can't get anything else. And you have it for a very long, unlimited amount of time. And then you can make okay swells with a backhoe. A backhoe is jittery and jumpy. And if you're digging anything significant, it has a thing called outriggers. So we're in the tractor, we're driving it, we've got usually a front-end loader on one. Those generally don't make very nice swales. Bulldozers can make nice swales, but we'll leave that for right now, especially with a six-way blade. You can make really fast, nice swales with a bulldozer. But no, we're going to use uh, an excavation-type machine. We do that with a backhoe. What we do is we, we drive a little bit and we set down. We put our outriggers out. It takes time. Down the outriggers go. Out comes the bucket. Now we, we turn and we dig and we dig and we dig and we dig. We dig, you know, probably six to nine feet linear is about what we can do because as we turn too much past being straight, we start to come off the ability because we don't have an articulating bucket. So now we're not making the swell the right shape. Now we got to take up the outriggers, we got to turn back around, we got to drive the tractor forward, we got to do a three-point turn, we go down the swell line a little bit, we back back in, we turn back around, we put our outriggers out, we dig a few, this takes a long time. It is worth spending the money, and, and, and it's not going to cost that much unless you're putting in really large swales to rent an excavator instead of a backhoe, because how's the excavator work? We pull the excavator up, we turn the tracks horizontal to the swale, We set things up, we start excavating, we start pulling dirt back onto ourselves. Pull it, pull, 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 pull. We reach the edge of what we can reach, right? We lift the bucket up a little bit, we grab a joystick, and we just follow the tracks. We move to the next stop point, we hit stop, because the excavator has that low center of gravity, it's very heavy, doesn't have outriggers. Dig, 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 move excavator. Dig, 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 move the excavator. Dig, 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 move the excavator. So much flipping faster. And then, if we're smart, we go back down the same line, and we're going to have a really highly pitched bank where we pulled the berm out. And now we go back and we take the excavator bucket, and we just, like a, like a big giant hand, and we just smooth out the bank. And it'll go much faster going back, because we're not digging now. Now we're just going to grab it, and we want to pull that berm out at least as wide as the ditch. A little bit wider would be a good idea. I didn't do that with the swells I put in here. It was the first time I ever you know, did them myself, and I made some mistakes. That It still works, but there's some erosion I wouldn't have if I had sh wider swells, shallower swells, and wider berms. And that's because I have a lot of rock, which probably won't plague you. But you go ahead and you knock them down. Or if you have like a work party going on, people do that with a, with a rake while you keep the excavator moving. But it really doesn't take long. It'll take a quarter of the time to pull the berm down as it did to put the swale in. How many linear feet? The guy that did them here with the Mini X, and we had like a 6,600 pound Mini X. I think I paid, I think I paid like 1,100 bucks to rent it for a week. So it wasn't real expensive. It was like $300 a day, and it was just might as well get it for the week for 1,100 bucks. And uh, we did all of the swales in one day. He took most of the day to do the first two. When he got into a rhythm, 
and got to the last one where there weren't a lot of trees in the way, even though it was an intricate swale with a lot of turns in it, but there weren't a lot of trees to work around. The last one was 235 feet, and he did it in less than an hour. And the, the excavator we had broke down. He put it on a trailer, took it back to the equipment place a few miles away, got a new one, brought it back, and he did that in an hour and a half. He was done with the last swale. So, I mean, it's nothing to go 100 feet an hour. Nothing. With an excavator, once you get some experience with it, you'd be hard-pressed to do half of what an excavator can do with a backhoe, and it won't be as good. The other thing, unless you're in rock, you want a bucket with a smooth blade, not teeth on it. So I hope that helps, because here's my other thing. I think that it would be a great idea for you to contact Nick Ferguson and get, you know, for a couple hundred bucks, an hour of consulting from him. He'll ask you for some information, for a Google Maps print, to walk around your property with a phone, and so he sees what you're doing, and just get a sanity check on this. I really do. I'm glad you have a plan. That's great. So I think a lot of you guys are actually pretty talented about this design thing, but I look at when you're going to make a permanent alteration to your landscape. Look at your consultant like we look at lawyers. There's times when I have no idea what the F I'm doing, so I go to a lawyer and say, take care of it, right? But there's times when I'm going to drop a contract for business. I know that shit. I've done it a 100 times. So I drop a contract, and I send it to my attorney and say, you know, Bob, what am I missing? What am I? Is there anything I'm missing here? Is there anything that's too vague? Is there anything that puts me at risk? And he does it once over on it and makes a few adjustments and kicks it back. I finalize and send it to the other party. So I'm only paying him for you know an hour of his time versus three days of his time to draft the entire contract, and you know spending as much time with him so he understands what I want as I could have just drafted it myself. So that's what I think a lot of you guys doing when you, when you step outside of gardening and you start bringing equipment, you start moving earth. I really think it makes sense to get that second opinion and and dial it in a little bit more. And I promise you on the machine choice. Nick has used a backhoe and used an excavator both for swales, you know, due to necessity. And he's going to tell you the same thing. You know, if you can find a reasonable, even a mini X, a mini X can make as big a swale as most of you ever need to make. You start making dams and ponds or, you know, grubbing out trees, that's different. But if you have decent dirt and you want to dig a swale, you know, a little mini X like I, I just explained can make a swale that's about eight feet wide and about a foot and a half deep in the, in the middle. Man, that's a big swale. That's a lot of water. So, so don't think you need to go much larger than that. I'll also say if you need smaller width swales, not two feet, but not much bigger, a three-bottom plow or a two-bottom plow, and you just mark a contour line, you drag that plow on that contour line, maybe make two passes, and it does take quite a bit of work to, uh, to kind of manually dress it up because you get this big kind of rocky berm. But once you clean that up, it's a great swale. We did that. We put a whole orchard in at uh, Elijah Spring Farm using a two-bottom plow. And it was really fast and really easy to do. We put in thousands of chestnut trees up on a very steep hill the same way. But we had a work party and a lot of people to do the dress-up. So that's another option as well. Let's take another one. Will the government use terrorism to push self-driving cars? Hi, this is Victor from Columbus, Ohio. I'm asking just two days after... A terrorist used a vehicle in Parliament to kill at least four people, Andrew Dozens. Um, just about a year ago in Columbus, Ohio, at the Ohio State University, 
another terrorist used his vehicle. He didn't kill anybody, but he injured four to five people. Thanks for your input. Um, I'm going to go with no. Uh, I doubt it. Unless the wind of change really starts to blow toward that world anyway, and it's like the last vestiges are holding out. I'm not going to give up my 75 Caprice or whatever, you know. Um, unless it's like that, I, I don't think it'll ever happen. Because I think right now the biggest impediment we have to self-driving vehicles is government. That we actually have the technology that's way ahead of the regulation. And that there's a lot of people spending a lot of money in the form of lobbyists to prevent it. Because if think of all the big money lobbies out there that, uh, that don't want this. So remember also that a lot of traffic legislation doesn't happen at the federal level. It happens at the state and local level. So there, I, I'm sure there's a lobbyist for taxi drivers that, that messes around at the federal level. But I can bet that most of the taxi driver lobbyist organizations work at the state level. They're in Austin. They're in New York City, right? They're in Chicago. They're in Los Angeles. They're in, uh, they're in uh, Las Vegas and, and, and what have you. Uh, that's where they're, they, they have their big holdings. So that's, and that's what the locals really have the biggest holdover. So they send their lobbyists in at the local level. So, It's a real complicated thing to legalize self-driving vehicles. They're running all over San Francisco right now in trials and, and working with local government there. But let's say they trial out. Let's say California says, you know, this self-driving vehicle thing is, is a thing now. And they completely pull back the regulations. Or, you know, California would never do that. They pull back the regulations such that it becomes possible for driverless vehicles to be marketed in the state of California. Does that apply to Texas or Florida or New York or Connecticut? You know, do you, can you imagine what what the, the lobbyists are like for, for cab drivers in Connecticut, in Massachusetts, New York, eastern Pennsylvania, like Philadelphia? I mean, it's a hard thing for some people that live in certain parts of the country to even understand because the only time they ever see a cab is at the airport. You know, you don't see cabs driving around all over the place. But like when we were in Seattle, uh, when, it, for like, when I was with Fluke for like the corporate meetings, you could get anywhere in Seattle with a cab. You just wait long enough, you'd see one, you could flag it down. Just like New York City. Not as many, but it was just like New York City. You could always get one eventually without making a phone call. Well, enter Uber and this disrupts all that. And there's been big fights over that. But at least with Uber, you're talking about people. And people can migrate. The cab driver himself can eventually migrate to Uber if that's what he wants to do. He can go higher or low end with Uber, Uber Black or regular Uber. So there's a place for people to go. But when Uber starts having self-driving vehicles, so I think government's going to be the impediment. I could be wrong. This isn't one of those ones where I'm like, I'm telling you right now, this is the way it's going to be. My gut, my instinct goes this way. I do think there'll be a tipping point. When government gets on board with this, because there's a lot of advantages for government if government starts to think about this. If everybody's using self-driving vehicles, less people own vehicles. That's going to be a natural consequence. I have a truck for hauling material. Assume I didn't need to haul you know, tons of material uh, every once in a while. And all I really needed was when my wife's not home and I need to go to the store, 
I need to be able to get there. If I can pull up my phone using an Uber-like app, and person-driven or not, a vehicle comes here, takes me to the store and back, and my cost to do that over a month is less than my cost of owning and maintaining a vehicle, including the insurance on it, sold. I'm done. I'm not even thinking about it anymore. If it's reliable and available, I'm done. Because I could be sitting here going, I'm going to be done with work in 15 minutes. What's available? Ah, 20 minutes out. Summon. Finish up my work. Walk out. Get in the car. Go to the store. And, and, and already have prearranged like how long I'm going to be there. Or wherever I'm going. Go to visit somebody, whatever. You know? Um, I'm going to use that. Now, here's where government gets the advantage. Between the fact that we all carry cell phones all the time. And now you have these autonomous vehicles driving around that are using sophisticated navigation technologies that all need to be integrated with central systems so that nobody runs into each other. Government will have a complete view of where everybody is and where everybody's gone. If they're investigating a crime and you used an Uber-ish, I'm going to like use the autonomous vehicle to get there, they're going to be able to prove that you did it. More so than the fact that vehicles come with GPSs now and things like that. Because you can disable those, you can opt out of them, you can get an older model car. So there's a lot of reasons for government to move in this direction for their own self-interest. But their, their, their current self-interest right now is ahead of their long-term self-interest. It also does a lot with infrastructure problems. Now, we have a just a jacked-up infrastructure. We do. We need a lot of rebuilding. And the trillion dollars over 10 years Trump is proposing, isn't f- it's a bigger problem than that. So it won't fix the problem. But there's no doubt that when we put a bridge in, the total number of vehicles that go over that bridge have an effect on the life of that bridge. If we reduce the number of vehicles that go over it per day, we extend its life expectancy. I mean, understand, most of the infrastructure that was put in in America, big infrastructure, interstate and stuff like that, was put in in the 50s. And it was, it was supposed to have a 30-year life expectancy. That would be the 80s. And all that's been done since the 80s, pitch patchwork here and patchwork there. There's been some big new installs, but most of the stuff hasn't been rebuilt the way it was originally planned to. The fact that it's still around is a testament to the engineering and the strength of concrete. You know, both of them get some credit. The strength of concrete and steel and the engineering that went into putting it in the first place. They were good engineers that built that, that, that system. They really were. And they did a quality job when they put it in. The fact that there's potholes in it, you know, uh, 80 years after it was put in, 70 years after it was put in, is not a reflection of the quality of the original installation. Everything has a life expectancy. So I don't know if they'll use terrorism, but I think there'll come a point where one way or another they'll get on board, but that point is not yet. All right, that wraps up our show for the day. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope I did a good job answering your questions. Remember, Think Line is 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Call from that quiet place. Make your point or ask your question up front. Follow with the details, just like the people you heard today. And I am cleaned out on new calls. So if you want to be heard next week on the air, get your calls in in the coming week. And if you like the show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can help support us is when you're doing your Amazon shopping, go check out our Amazon reviews at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. When you go to tspaz.com, you can click on a link that shows the Amazon deals of the day. Once you do that, any shopping you do, we're going to get credit for the sale. So you're supporting us no matter what you're going to buy. Dog diapers, doesn't matter. But I also have an item that I review every day. Today is an Encore item. It's the Gerber EAB Lite. Let me tell you something, guys. This year, at the spring event, I had four people reach in their pocket and pull one out and go, yep, been carrying it ever since I heard about it. 
It is a little bitty razor knife. It's about the size of a money clip. In fact, a lot of people use it as a money clip. Though if you do, within about six months, the clip will break off, but they only cost eight bucks. Um, it folds up to about the size of a little bit bigger than a razor blade when it's closed, and it uses a standard razor, uh, razor blade, uh, like for a utility knife in it, and it's got a little screw that holds it in. You use it until it gets dull, take the screw out, flip it around, and use it again. That'll last you about a week if you use it a lot. So if you buy a, a box of 100 razor blades for 10 bucks, that'll last you about four years. Always having a razor sharp blade on you at all times. And then when that box comes with that sticky, nasty tape on it, and you're thinking about pulling off that, that you know, $150 or $250 knife, neck knife around your neck and plunging it into that gross tape, you don't do that. You leave that for important things. You pull your little razor knife off and you use it. It is a great piece of EDC kit. I carry it or something like it all the time. All the time. I keep a, a, a box of razor blades in my junk drawer with a roll of tape. And once a week, I go in there and I take the screw out, I tape up the blade, I tape up the blade, understand that, and I throw it away. So that if the dog gets in the trash or the garbage man you know, rubs it across his leg, nobody gets cut, because even though it's dull, it's still got some sharp points to it. And then I put the new blade in, I put the tape and the thing back in the drawer, and my knife is always a razor blade because it is a razor blade. They're eight bucks. This is a great way to share prepping. That's another thing I like about this. I buy so many of the damn things because I meet people and they're like, what's that? And I say, well, here's what it is. Here's why I can't. Oh, that's cool. I should get one here. And I, I talk just a little seed of preparedness. You know, I try to carry things so I'm prepared for stuff. And they'll ask, you know, like, well, you know, what? Like, I, I do this show and I tell them the show address. You do the same thing if you want to help spread the word about me. But if you just want to get people into some level of preparedness, because doesn't it drive you crazy when you're, you're talking to someone and, like, they're like, oh, I need a knife. You're like, well, here's, here's a knife. And you're like, you don't carry a knife? I'm like, no. How, how do you, how does a grown man, not, how does a grown woman not carry a freaking knife? Like, it's one of the, I had a, a buddy that, a martial arts guy, Valerie Asanoff, former KGB guy, uh, over here doing martial arts training. He notices I have a knife, and it's like a, a one-handed open, you know, knife in my pocket, uh, clipped where you can just draw it and open it. He says, why are you carrying a knife? In his mind, it was only a weapon. You know, he's li he was, at the time, he was living in London. Knives are outlawed. You know, grew up in the Soviet Union. Was served. He was on a judo squad for the Olympics and ended up in the KGB eventually. You know, I mean, to him, it was only a weapon. The, the, the fact that it was a tool didn't make any sense to him. And I think a lot of people in America, for totally different reasons, think the same way, like a knife for stabbing people. Like, you use a knife every day when you eat. Right? So, like, there's stuff to be cut. This is a great way to you know, share that message of prepping, always have that sharp blade, and preserve your good knife for the, the, the things it really should be doing. Like not opening cardboard boxes is one of those things it should not be doing. Check it out today again, the Gerber EAB Lite. Now it is time for the song of the day. Song of the day today is from the Quiet Beetle. Some of you are like, who is the Quiet Beetle? Some of you are like, oh, it's George Harrison. It's called Give Me Love. And this song was... Um, Basically, in his own life, George found spirituality and this way of looking at the world in a very loving way, wanting peace and being good to other people. At the same time, he was a member of probably the biggest band in history at the time and an incredible rock star in the eyes of millions and millions of people, especially young girls. 
and there's drugs and there's sex and there's all this stuff going on. And he had a real conflict in his life about like, which way should I really be going? Because this is fun. I like the money. I like the sex. And I'm sure there was some drugs in there somewhere. Um, and the other side is like, there's this better way to live. And I think this is a, a good choice by John Adam for, for 1973 because the country's starting to feel this way. The country's starting to feel this way. Even the, like the rebellious hippies are starting to realize like, yo, dude, I'm going to have to get a job. I can't, I can't travel around in a van for the rest of my life. Maybe for the rest of the 70s or close to it, but like I'm going to have to actually be responsible. And that doesn't mean I have to give up what I really want, which is, you know, honestly, most of those people, they wanted was peace. They were tired of war. There's a lot of that in this song, so give it a listen. It's actually a song that I really wasn't familiar with at all. Um, it's from the time I really love in music, but it's, it's, it's kind of a newer song. I've heard it before, but like one of those is like, oh, yeah, I heard that. I really never paid attention to it. Didn't dislike it, didn't like it, didn't love it. Just wasn't me. And uh, good song, good groove. Captures the feeling of 1973. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.